Welcome to EdTech Insiders. In this podcast, we talk to educators and educational technology investors, thought leaders, founders, and operators about the most interesting and exciting trends in the field. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an educational technology veteran with over a decade of work at leading EdTech companies. In this episode of EdTech Insiders, we speak with Jomaira Herrera. Jomaira Herrera is a partner at Reach Capital, one of the leading EdTech venture capital firms, where she supports entrepreneurs that develop technology solutions for challenges in education from early childhood through the future of work. Jomaira is from Orlando, Florida, where she was raised to believe that education is not only a priority, but one of a few things that no one can ever take from you. With that mindset, she became a first-generation college graduate at Stanford University and earned an MA in Education Policy, Organization, and Leadership Studies. She was an operator at EdTech startup Bloomboard and has worked in venture capital at Emerson Collective and Cowboy Ventures before becoming the newest and youngest partner at Reach Capital. Jumaira Herrera, welcome to EdTech Insiders. Hi, thank you for having me. So, Jamara, we've been trying to get you on the podcast for quite a while, and uh, you and I spoke a long time ago, and we had some technical difficulties. I'm so happy to have you here. You have such a fascinating background. So tell us a little bit about your education background, your investing background, and how you ended up in ed tech investing at Reach. Yeah, I definitely have a little bit of a curvy path to where I am today, but For some context, I actually grew up in Orlando, Florida. That's where I'm currently recording from and talking to you from. And as you can imagine, in Orlando, there wasn't much talk about startups or venture capital or technology really generally. And so when I got to Stanford, which is where I ended up going to school, that was kind of my first introduction into this new tech world and Silicon Valley. And while I was there, I studied political science. And then I actually went and got my graduate degree in education. And part of the reason for that was education was such a huge lever in my own life and my family's life. I'm the first in my family to go to college. And so I understand the role that it can play in helping to accelerate economic mobility. And so for me, it was really important to have that as part of my career. And so studied education for graduate school, ended up starting my career at an ed tech startup. The company was called Bloomboard. We were helping to transition professional development for teachers from sit and get professional development to competency-based. And so if you've ever worked at an ed tech company, which I know you have, but if the listeners have worked there and have sold software to school districts, you know, it's really, really, really hard. But I learned a ton through that experience. And I was lucky enough that one of our investors was actually Lorraine Powell Jobs, Steve Jobs' widow. And at the time, she was building out her family office called now called Emerson Collective. And her and her brother were kind of primarily leading most of the investing efforts there. And so they were hiring their first few set of investors. And as part of that, I ended up joining the team. And that team ended up growing to about 20 investors by the time I left. And that was my first foray into investing in venture capital. And I have to admit, it was less so about my interests in investing or even my interest in venture capital. And it was a lot more about this idea of being able to deploy capital towards issues that I actually cared about. And Emerson Collective, like at the time, education was one of the primary areas that they were investing in. It's now since expand to multiple verticals. But 
the idea that I could really spend a lot of my time digging into how we can leverage capital, especially, you know, significant amounts of capital to help change education was super compelling to me. So spent a few years there, then decided that I wanted to go and focus entirely on early stage as opposed to across the investing spectrum and went to Cowboy Ventures for a few years investing in consumer internet companies and marketplace companies, and now have since moved to Reach Capital, where I intend to stay for the next, I don't know, 15 plus years and really make my home, where we got the heart of our investing is really in education technology. And I focus more on the latter end of the spectrum there, where I tend to focus on adult learning, future of work, what happens after you, you know, you exit an education institution around generating income and finding work opportunities. And so that was a very long-winded way of explaining how I got into venture. It's a terrific background. Reach Capital is one of the big dedicated ed tech investment firms. They've invested in a wide variety of ed tech companies that our listeners may know, including Better Lesson, Class Dojo, Desmos, Handshake, Nearpod, Nuzella, Outschool, Springboard, Tinkergarden, and, and many more. I definitely recommend looking at their portfolio. So you in particular have invested in both consumer non-educational companies and ed tech companies in your time at Cowboy and others. Tell us what makes ed tech investing different from investing in other sectors. One, the actual fundamentals of investing very much stay the same. You still care about the business fundamentals. You still care about business models working. You still care about founder and team. All of those things remain true. I think where the ed tech investing is different is around the domain expertise. What makes education investing different is really the domain expertise truly does matter. For example, we at Reach believe that the products that are going to win are the ones that actually make learning better, are the ones that actually make learning effective. And so for you to be able to make those investments, you actually have to have some understanding of what makes good curriculum, what makes good pedagogy, what keeps students engaged. And so at REACH, we often joke that we have more masters in education than we do MBAs. And we do that purposefully. And we made those hires purposefully because we think that they'll ultimately make better investment decisions because they actually have an understanding of the unique nuances of what's going to work for students. I think the other piece that matters is we have a unique understanding of how these institutions work. We have a unique understanding of some of the institutions that people are selling to. So selling into schools and selling into districts is very different than selling into enterprises and corporations. And so we have now, as you mentioned before, we have a portfolio of companies that have done that. And so we know what works. We know what doesn't work. We know like what challenges to expect. And so all of that type of information, I think is super helpful as you think about investing in a sector that is regulated, it's complex, it's historically been hard to make money in. And we've been lucky that we found some of the great winners in the space, or many of the great winners in the space. But there is definitely some unique domain expertise that's needed when you're investing in this sector. A follow-up question that I think is to put a really fine point on what you're saying. What do you see that makes EdTech founders different than founders of startups in other areas? You know, we have a lot of listeners who are either current founders or are thinking about founding their own company. They may be ex-teachers, they may be coming out of EdTech and wanting to start their own thing. So are there any sort of personality traits or skill sets that you see more often in EdTech founders than in other types of founders? Yeah, so we actually think less so about the individual founders and we think more about how the 
team, the overall founding team comes together and complements each other. And so generally what we're looking for on a team is there's a mixture of, let's call it business savvy. So has traditional, maybe they come from a traditional high growth tech company or has a traditional type of business background, but then also is complemented with other people on the team that have true domain expertise or can build empathy with the end user. And that can be someone that is a former teacher, a former administrator, maybe if they're selling into corporate L&D, it's a former head of L&D, whatever it might be. They've built out a complementary team that has the empathy with the end user, but then also has a lot of the business savvy that's needed to actually build out a great company. I think the other piece, and this is probably true, honestly, of most companies, I don't even think it's specific to ed tech, but John Doerr, I believe, had a great saying around, look for missionaries, not mercenaries. And for us, this kind of missionary persona, which is a founder that, you know, of course, wants to make a great business that is going to be a huge financial outcome, but they're actually not driven by that. They're driven by almost a higher calling. They're driven by actually wanting to see change in whatever issue that they're tackling. That's the type of persona that we're looking for. Those are the types of attributes that we think often win at the end of the day, because as you know, building a startup is incredibly difficult and very challenging. And having just a deep-seated passion for wanting to see a different outcome, wanting to see a change, is going to be that powerful force that lets a founder stay in the game when inevitably things get hard. That makes a lot of sense. So it's a team that combines that sort of deep abiding passion, the domain expertise and empathy for the end user and business sense so that they can actually pull it together as a business and make it work. And if those three come together, and I imagine some technical expertise as well, then you have a team that really checks the boxes and it starts to seem like a a meaningful possibility. Right. That's great. So one of the things that we have not talked about ever on this podcast, but I think it's starting to get really interesting is the overlap between Web3 and education. And luckily, you've really become a thought leader in this space. You've written about Web3 and education. You're in groups about it. So I've been learning about Web3 myself. I'm not a, a crypto person from way back. And I imagine many of our listeners are also sort of just beginning to learn about these new concepts. So I'd love to just go back and forth and have a little intro to what Web3 is before we jump into talking about how Web3 works with education. And just for our listeners, we will put a bunch of resources in the show notes so that if you want to go deeper in Web3, you can use those resources to sort of find out all the different nuances of it. But Jamara, tell us a little bit about Web3 in general. I've heard a lot of people say that Web3 is kind of one of the best rebrands of this decade because really Web3 is now almost a little bit of a nebulous concept because it encapsulates basically the move into more of a decentralized web. And so that includes building a decentralized web that's largely built off of a blockchain. And we can talk a little bit about what are some of the different types of layer one blockchain, layer two, we can go into all of the specifics, but it's basically built off of a blockchain and that has decentralized applications on top of it. And really the core tenants are that, you know, one, it's decentralized. So it moves away from this kind of centralization that we've had over that have really defined the internet over the last few decades. It's trustless, it's permissionless, it's open source. Those are all kind of like some of the tenants that underlie some of what defines Web3. 
The other component that I think a lot of people also add and put under the umbrella of Web3 is also this concept of the metaverse, which is kind of this immersive, virtual and augmented reality that, again, is open, it's decentralized. And so that, you know, the metaverse is kind of a part of this overall kind of umbrella of Web3. And then the other component I would add is kind of like the crypto component, which is there are crypto tokens that help to power a lot of the the underlying web. And so it is a very nebulous concept, but there's a lot of components that go under it. And we can talk about specifics when the net. Sure. It seems like a concept that's somewhere between buzzword and really, really powerful predictor of the future. And I, you know, I've been trying to sort of pick apart the pieces and understand it better as well. The idea that metaverse is now part of Web3 is, seems particularly very new to me. I, it doesn't feel like it's baked into the original definition, but I guess it is right now. And we'll see where that all goes. There's one concept about Web3 that really sort of woke it up for me that made me really understand it on what I consider a somewhat semi-understanding level, which is that it was basically saying that, you know, web one was read-only internet when we used to just go to web pages and very few people would make pages, but a lot of people would consume them. And web two was is the internet where we're all familiar with now, where most sites have some kind of interactivity. You can leave a review or post a video or do any kind of social networking or, you know, sell things on eBay. It's interactive and it's two-way. What makes web three different from what I've read is the ownership aspect. The idea that instead of posting a video to TikTok and then TikTok can sort of do whatever it wants with that video and it can send it to anyone and it can make money off of it and all of these things. The idea is that if you post a video to a Web3 version of TikTok, you own that video, you own the data attached to it, you own any downstream effects of it, and the blockchain sort of supports the ability to follow that piece of content or that user data all the way down and always know that it's connected to the original user. Does that resonate with you? Totally. And I think this matters now more than ever before, because as we've seen over the past few years, we've been talking about the creator economy. Many of the creators across, call it TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, and any other social media platform have really played a huge role in catalyzing these platforms to the great success that they are today. And now they're worth multiples of billions of dollars. And yet most of those creators have seen a negligible amount of that value that they've created in that underlying platform. And so for the past few years, I think they've gone through this period of time where at first it seemed like, wow, this is really great. I can rise to some form of celebrity status. But then when you actually start to look at the numbers of what percent of the creators are even making any form of income. But then two, when you actually look at the income that they're making relative to the value that they created for the underlying platform, it starts to become actually really worrisome. And for many, I can imagine like there's a piece of frustration around it. And so Web3 now offering this possibility of being able to own the content or own a part of the underlying platform that you're supporting, it's really enticing. That's really well said. I love your emphasis on the idea that creators create enormous value for the platforms they're putting their content on, and they're only collecting a very small portion of that. So even a, you know, a YouTube star that's making a decent amount of money off the ads is creating a hundred times as much value for the platform as they are for themselves. So you've written about how you are all in on web 
three in education. And I want to just drop out one quote from your Substack article I found incredibly interesting. So quote here, I have spent the vast majority of my career focusing on increasing access to education and economic mobility. And I think we are finally at a moment where culture and technology, largely encapsulated by the Web3 movement, are conspiring to create a more equitable future. That really caught my eye. So tell us a little bit about how you feel that Web3 will create more equity and more equity in education. Yeah. So first, I'll caveat it with I'm all in on jumping into learning about Web3. And I should have made that clear in the article, because I think I avoided it for quite some time, partially because whenever I see something overhyped or hyped up a lot, I don't know about you, but I close up against it and I become super, super skeptical. And I'm like, that is way too overhyped. Like there's not enough skepticism. And I start to kind of get that, that cynicism that comes naturally to me. And then I think as I started to see some of the smartest people I know, and particularly young people, people of color jumping in, getting excited, some of them leaving their full-time jobs that are comfortable jobs to jump in entirely into Web3 is when I started to realize like there's something here. And it is like the responsible thing to dive in and understand like what are the implications around learning and economic mobility? Because I agree with the overall tenants, like I laid out in my article, I agree with the overall tenants of the movement and of Web3. And so I'm trying to understand, you know, what are the use cases and where can we find value on the issues that I care about and that as a fund we care about. And so with that caveat, The reason that I made that statement is we know that we are in times right now where inequality is at its highest. And there are many, many reasons that drive the level of inequality that we have. One of the major drivers is the huge inequality that we have in terms of ownership in appreciating assets. And that can be stocks, it can be home ownership. They are huge drivers around increasing inequality, particularly when it comes to generational wealth. And what I like about Web3 goes to where we really kind of started this conversation, which is around ownership. When you, as a participant in a network, actually have access to own a part of that platform that you're providing value to or have the ability to own your content and that can appreciate in value over time. Like that for me, one, increasing and democratizing access to those things and two, seeing those appreciate in value over time now provides an avenue that for me seems a lot more interesting around potentially like decreasing the inequality that we currently see. If that's how it plays out is still a question mark. But the potential is, is there. Because right now, if you look at the numbers, even though people of color and young people and women are more likely to own crypto than own stocks, if you look at the overall market, the reality is that it's still highly skews towards white male higher income in terms of those that are owning most of these assets. And so if that continues in that direction and we don't really change the underlying DNA of Web3, we risk recreating a lot of the inequality that we already see. Yeah, that's very, very well said. It strikes me as really interesting when you sort of put together some of the pieces of the increased inequality in the US for a long time, the creator economy going up into these mega platforms that the web two platforms that we all know that sort of, you know, centralize and run everything. And then you look down and say, well, look, what is some of the actual content 
that's really making a big difference, both in education and entertainment. And it's like, if you look at a Facebook or an Instagram or a TikTok, so many of the influencers and so many of the creators are people of color or very young people or LGBTQ plus. And they are jumping into this creative economy. When I was at Skillshare, I saw this enormously. Some of our most popular courses at Skillshare were from a huge variety of different types of young creators. But the platforms still, unfortunately, tend to employ not enough people of color, not enough people who are representative of the creators. So I love this angle on Web3 that if we could get to a place where the creators, and this includes teachers, by the way, right, where the creators have true ownership over their content, you, you think of a site like Teachers Pay Teachers. If you think of sites like Teachers Pay Teachers, where teachers have a route to making some additional income off of their teaching work, and then you combine that with the Web3 ethos, you have a really interesting potential opportunity for teachers and people of color. Totally. And one thing we haven't even talked about is there's a piece around you can actually own your content, get value in the underlying platform. But the other piece is a big barrier for creators to actually create content might be time and resources. And so I'm seeing a lot of platforms that are content marketplaces or content creation platforms in the web through world introduce this concept where you can actually invest in a creator, whether it is through creator coins or some other form of method to be able to jump in and create their content before they even jump in. You effectively can reduce the barrier to even entry for many of those people that otherwise wouldn't be able to take that leap. And then you as an investor, like you can consider yourself a patron or investor, however you want to define it, are able then to you're able to get value as the value of that creator's content increases over time, you're able to reap some benefit from that, which otherwise maybe you would have been a fan from afar and maybe you would have given extra listens to them on SoundCloud or maybe you would have supported them in other ways. Maybe it would be on Patreon or whatever it might be. You don't actually get anything back for that initial patronage or that initial fandom. And now you do in this new type of world. And so there's that other piece that we haven't even talked about. So there's a lot of avenues that can help support that creator. And like you said, many of them are young people. Many of them are people of color. That's a really interesting dynamic at play. So it's sort of like in a Patreon model, Patreon style model, where you have patrons who, you know, pay a, a monthly fee or Substack or medium or, you know, pay a creator a subscription fee or, or money over time to help them create content. The patrons receive the content. Sometimes they receive some exclusive content or things like that. But what's really different about Web3 and really about blockchain technologies in general is when you buy into something in Web3, you are literally buying into it. You are getting tokens and partial ownership. And and then the value of that thing that you bought can actually increase or decrease over time, sometimes enormously. And there may actually be a chance to sort of have a, a combination of investment and patronage. I love that vision. Right. Another area of Web3 that people have talked a lot about, and I'm a little bit on the fence with this one myself, I'm trying to figure it out, but is the concept of digital credentials that are on the chain. So basically taking certificates, diplomas, learning experiences, various types of learning outcomes, let's say, and tying them to a blockchain 
token or tying them to an actual asset so that they are trackable, that you can keep them. The idea of like almost like a transferable student transcript where it doesn't stay with your school. You can just, it's attached to you because you own it. So I want to quote you back to yourself one more time and hear you talk about this. So a quote from you. In a Web2 world, we focus on trying to wrap up what happens in the offline world into a digital-based credential that is given meaning. Web3 starts to get much closer to what we wish we had, a ledger of everything we have actually done. As opposed to relying on a summative or one-time assessment of our skills, Web3 presents the ability to capture all tasks you are able to complete on-chain. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I would say when we went through the first blockchain, like let's call it blockchain fad or phase in 2017, a lot of the education world immediately went to, well, we can put degrees on the blockchain. And I think in that moment, nothing about that really excited me because the problem of degree or certification fraud is like fairly low. Like I don't think anyone thinks about that on a daily basis. And so it didn't really feel like a hair on fire problem to solve. And so just the idea of wrapping up your course completion or your degree completion into an NFT, not that exciting to me. Now, when you start to get to the atomic unit of things that you actually do that can be captured on chain, that ultimately build up to some form of on chain reputation, or call it even like an on chain type of LinkedIn, that starts to get a lot more interesting to me. Because For most people, like I've employed people, you've employed people, for most people that are employing people or making, you know, a judgment on whether someone is capable enough to do a project or something, I want to know what you've actually done. And just like a degree from a university doesn't tell me what you actually did throughout those four years or two years or however long the program was, an NFT or credential, like, doesn't really do that for me either. Now, an actual on-chain, like, oh, I saw that you were able to create X amount of money from X amount of investment that you did through Compound, or you were able to do X, Y, and Z things in this DAO, and your peers in that DAO rated you in X, Y, and Z ways. Like That starts to get a lot more interesting. That current functionality doesn't really exist. It's totally possible to be built. I haven't yet seen someone that actually does this in like a really nice way. And to be clear, like the range of things that you can do right now on on chain are seemingly limited because most of the use cases are more on the decentralized finance side. But that's today. That's not, you know, like ultimately where I'm investing is like in a 10 year horizon. I think that that changes exponentially over the next year or two in terms of what you can actually do on chain, what can be captured and how it's captured. That makes a lot of sense. It struck me the same way when I first sort of heard about that use case of, oh, we can take diplomas and degrees and certificates and put them on a blockchain so that the ownership can be verified. And it was like, well, you know, how often do people fake diplomas or fake their high school, you know, fake fake college degrees? I'm sure it happens, but it doesn't feel like the type of problem that that society is really wrestling with. But on the other hand, the ability to sort of take what sometimes in EdTech we call the black box of a degree, right? If you see somebody's, okay, you have a, a BA from this school, that sort of implies all of this additional work. And some places ask for transcripts like graduate schools, but the idea of unpacking an educational experience, or even more importantly, as you're saying, unpack somebody's life experience, work experience, the research they do, the, you know, the projects they, they've done on the side, that starts to become a, a more 
promising, I think, an interesting use of Web3. I'm with you there. Yeah, totally. Like my big thing is, this is true of like any company that I evaluate, whether it's Web2 or Web3, like you have to be solving a real problem. And so I'm not as interested in folks that are using Web3 for Web3's sake. I'm interested in like, what's a real big societal problem or challenge that we have? Definitely like actually showcasing our work and what we've done is one of them. And how can Web3 facilitate that? Yeah. One use case I'm just personally curious about, I don't know if this has come up in any of your any of your research, but is the idea of teachers or educators of any kind being able to create educational content, which is linked to them on the chain so that as that content gets used or shared or embedded or, you know, put into any kind of lesson plan or textbook or, or video, there's a sort of way to compensate that person. Because, you know, for many years, we've been thinking about these sort of learning objects. It's a very old fashioned term in ed tech now, but like, you know, there's been this dream of, hey, if, if we could find a way for any educator to put together learning objects in a way that are, that are interoperable, we can do something totally amazing. And I'm wondering if Web3 might unlock that. I've seen some companies start to think about this. And I can't say which ones because they are most of them are Web2 companies that are actually thinking about transitioning into Web3. And so are trying to kind of explore this strategy more in stealth right now. And so there are companies that are definitely thinking about this. I think the key is figuring out, are teachers ready for this? And like, actually, it's less so, are teachers ready for this? It is more so like, is where like the tooling and the architecture is of Web3 right now, user-friendly enough that it will work for teachers and it will feel pretty seamless because for a teacher, and actually I think for anyone, for any type of consumer, for Web3 to actually hit mass adoption, you should not know that you're on a Web3 site. Like Web3, it should be an innovation that is on the back end. The front end should still feel seamless. It should still feel easy to use. Like everything should be pretty integrated and moves fairly quickly. We shouldn't be paying ridiculous gas fees. And so I think the question is like, not if something like that is going to happen. I think the question is when it's going to happen and when the actual technology will be ready for massive consumer adoption. I don't think that's the case right now. But this is just a long way of saying like there are existing companies that are thinking about this. For any listeners who are hearing some of these Web3 crypto phrases that Jamira is saying, like DAO or NFT or gas fees, we will, I promise, put some links to sort of Web3 glossaries. There is an enormous vocabulary that comes with this crypto Web3 world. Anybody who starts getting into it, including myself now, forgets that there's, <laughs> these terms are still very new to most people. I but, know. I am so sorry. I am no, like, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I am not using my like classic teacher skills and my classic education <laughs> skills. Normally, I'm better and more on top of my stuff, but I will do, hopefully for the rest of this interview, I'll do a better job of explaining some of the jargon. No, no, but I mean, it's so hard because these things are a little bit complex. So to stop in the middle of a sentence and explain what a DAO is, I totally understand. We'll give a glossary and really recommend, actually. It's, I think these are good terms to learn about because the world is sort of shifting around them in some interesting ways. So, Jamara, you mentioned that some of the companies are in sort of stealthy mode or they're Web2 companies jumping into Web3 on the back end. Tell us a little bit about some of the Web3 in education projects that you can talk about that you're finding really interesting and sort of are starting to move the field forward. 
So I think the first thing I'll say is like within education specifically, and when I mean education, I mean like companies that actually are helping people learn something. It could be a skill, it could be a social skill, it could be a hard skill, whatever it might be. Like they're actually teaching some form of knowledge. I would say the intersection of those two things, that and Web3 is still very, very, very early. There is no dominant business model. There is no dominant use case. Like I will say it's still a fairly early concept. That said, there are some companies that are starting to build in the space. So for example, one of the leading companies that a lot of people know about that is pioneering this kind of learn to earn model is called Rabbit Hole. And the way the company works is that you are able to fulfill tasks. So they're crypto related tasks, and it might be create a wallet in MetaMask. It might be stake a coin in Compound or something like that. And again, you'll get all these glossary terms later, but it'll be a specific crypto or Web3 related task. Once you complete that task, you're able to earn some form of reward in crypto. And the way the underlying tokenomics works is that for bringing in that customer, that consumer, Rabbit Hole is able to get almost call it like a customer acquisition fee from the project protocol or company. And then they split that fee with the user. So the user is able to get some form of kickback in terms of reward, and then they keep a percentage of that. And so that's kind of like how the overall ecosystem works. And so they're calling this model learn to earn because you complete the task and you're kind of learning through that task and you earn as a result of it. Now, the challenge I have with this model, and this is not a jab at rabbit hole at all. I think rabbit hole will end up being a or I hope or I expect it will be a very, very successful business is I don't view that as learning. I view that as customer acquisition, which as we know, is one of the largest industries in the world. And I view it as like, yes, there is a piece around you're doing a task. There might be some learning in doing that task. But as you know, just as well as I know, learning is a lot more complicated than that. Like a task without content, a task without providing a sense of why is this important? How does this fit in the overall ecosystem? Like, how do I, you know, leverage the skill into something else? Like, that's not really learning for learning's sake. And so to call it learn to earn, I think is actually probably not the right term for it. And so I think like, folks are kind of treating that as what kind of like one of the companies that are at the forefront of learning and the intersection of learning and Web3. And I just don't know if that's exactly the case now. Now, I don't know how their vision evolves over time. I haven't talked to Brian around that. And so if they might have a much broader or much, you know, fuller picture of how this evolves more into learning, but it's not really that today. And so a framework that I've been using, at least for myself, as I look into companies is, is there an analog kind of like web to business model for the company. And so in the case of rabbit hole, like customer acquisition, as you know, is like a massive multi-billion dollar business, but there's no business that I know of that actually pays people to learn. Like that's not a business model. And so learn to earn actually doesn't really make much sense to me because there really is no reason or no incentive for why someone might pay you to learn. And so I haven't yet seen someone effectively do that. Some other companies in this space, I'll just, I'll quickly walk through maybe one more. Another company in the space is called Questbook. And what they do is they take Web2 developers, they actually teach them how to code in Web3 ecosystems, and they then connect them to projects that companies might be hosting or protocols might be hosting. 
and effectively serve as like a new hiring marketplace. So call it like a hired for for Web3. And this is hugely important because right now there's only about, I think, 18,000 Web3 developers across the world total. And I might be undercounting some, but like active Web3 developers, it's about 18,000 across the world. And that's compared to tens of millions of Web2 developers. So as you can imagine, like there's huge demand. And so that's kind of a place where they're helping to fill a need. Those are both really good examples. It it strikes me as I hear you describe some of these that, you know, you mentioned at the beginning of this interview that Web3 is sort of like a rebrand. And it, it feels a little bit like the crypto world, the blockchain crypto, the sort of early adopters of cryptocurrency and the really firm believers in, in a sort of decentralized world with ownership. Uh, I think of like Jaron Lanier and many crypto enthusiasts over the years tend to sort of, this is not meant as a bad thing, but they're very firm believers in this particular future. And it's almost like a messianic, you know, like matrix, like, you know, freedom from Google, freedom from Facebook, freedom from banks. It strikes me that we're in a moment in Web3 where it's starting to move into education, but in a very particular way, it's almost like a recruiting tool. It's like, oh, we will teach you how to be also like us, also a Web3 developer or a Web3 somebody who understands the technology, who can invest in it, who can get a job in it. Nothing wrong with any of those projects, but they seem a little bit early. As you're saying, it's a nascent world because it's still trying to sort of build its own critical mass. And it feels like there may be a little bit of time before it is widespread enough to be able to make its way into traditional education. Would you agree with that? I think that's probably a good assessment. I think for me, I tend to be a tech optimist. So I don't like to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And what I see right now is there's a universe of tools that are arising. And there's a technological shift that's happening that is very exciting. And in this time period, there's a lot of iteration and experimentation that's going to happen. And the reality is that maybe 90% of it will fail and will not make a lot of sense. And we'll look back and we'll be like, why did we ever do this? But 10% are going to be the future Googles of the world, Facebooks of the world. And I mean, from a scale perspective, not from a like what they do perspective, but like they're going to be the future big, meaningful, impacting companies of the world over the next few decades. And just that small, even let's not even call it 10%, just that 1% makes me excited enough to keep digging and keep searching and keep finding value in a lot of a lot of like the excitement that and the craze that is happening right now. I think it's so easy to be skeptical and be cynical in this market because there are some people that maybe hype it up a little bit too much, but there's enough value there. There's enough potential there that it's worth keeping on digging. And we might not find valuable use cases for another, I don't know, year, two years, maybe even five years. But I think it'll definitely come over time. I agree. I'm going to agree with that from my perspective. I think that it is the potential is enormous. And, you know, what's been happening in decentralized finance is really astounding. It's been incredible blossoming of this enormous ecosystem, which is that part of this world is sort of a little more advanced than what we've seen in web through an education. So I agree that, you know, the first companies to really crack that sort of ownership model and allow students or teachers or schools or different kinds of educational players to truly own 
their content or their data or to or their degrees or whatever whatever it ends up being will become enormous and it's worth keeping a, a very close eye on so i know we're about to end so i wanted to ask your finishing thoughts with just one very quick question we always ask our guests what is one book or blog or twitter feed that you would recommend for somebody to learn more about edtech or about more about the, some of the issues we've talked about today Yeah, I think one book that I would recommend that I read last year was The Raging 2020s, which is actually, I think, how we, when we originally met, we talked quite a bit about this book, which is this idea that the relationship between capital, labor, and the state has changed so much over the last few decades with capital getting a lot more power than it's had historically, and how the 2020s will be defined on how that relationship changes. And the reason why it says raging is because there is this idea that labor and labor really meaning people that are powering that labor are starting to feel that rage of there is a huge discrepancy in terms of the power that they have relative to capital and the state. And we're already seeing this with massive labor shortages, people quitting in mass, people resigning, etc. And while this is not so much related to ed tech specifically, I think it's important for everyone to understand because it, the impact of this is going to reverberate across industries. And I think it's like a really, really good mental model and framework for everyone to have going into this next decade. That's a terrific suggestion. And yeah, I've, I've been reading uh, Raging 2020s as well. It is absolutely fascinating. And we're just at a very interesting time in history, I think. And we'll, we'll all look back at it and say, wow, that was when inequality was really sort of making everything in the world act very strangely. I, I, hopefully, we look back from a place where it's a more equal and equitable world. Thank you so much, Jabira. You know, I always love talking to you. And you just have such incredible insights into the edtech space, the crypto space, and society in general. I thank you so much, especially because I know you're just getting over COVID. So I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you for having me, Alex. Thanks, Jabira. Thanks for listening to this episode of the EdTech Insiders podcast. If you liked the episode, remember to subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating and review so others can find the podcast. For more EdTech Insiders content, subscribe to the EdTech Insiders newsletter at edtechinsiders.substack.com.